0: Have you ever thought about starting a small food-based business? There's a lot to think about. Like, what am I going to make? Business plan? Production? Where am I going to make it? Can I make it? Legal? Insurance? In this episode of the Clean Slate Farm Podcast, we're going to cover some of those topics to help you get started. I can tell you from personal experience, you're going to have a great time, and you're going to meet lots of interesting people. But you'll need to be organized to be successful. Today, we're going to talk with Marty Butts from Small Potatoes. I'm going to let Marty tell you who he is and what he does. Let's go. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Clean Slate Farm Podcast. Today, we're talking with Marty Butts from Small Potatoes. Marty is, well, I'm going to let Marty tell you what a, what Marty does. Uh, pretty interesting guy. I've known Marty for a while. And um, the gist of our conversation today is going to be about starting a small food business. Some of the things you need to know and how you get going in that. And Marty's pretty much an expert on that. He lectures all over the country. So, Marty, how you doing today? Can you tell us a little I'm bit about well, yourself? Good, good, great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your yourself and Small Potatoes? Sure.
1: Uh, so, in the most general sense, I'm a consultant and an educator. Uh, Small Potatoes is uh, currently uh, consult. I would say a boutique consulting company, um, which at this moment means I'm a one man show. Uh, I have uh, extended services network where I get, where I'll bring people in to work on certain projects. Uh, but right now, that means I mostly do consulting and workshops on starting and growing a food business. Um, although anybody who's ever been in business will tell you it's changed many times through the years. Uh, I've pivoted my focus as uh, the market dictated and as my own uh, personal needs dictated. So right now, uh, consulting and workshops. But when I got started, it was more sales work, consulting, or sales work and marketing work. Uh, stuff that was more out in the real world than than teaching people like I mostly do now.
0: Yeah, but you've got an extensive background in food, anyway. And you worked on a farm, was it for a while?
1: Yeah, uh, when I grew up, uh, when I was probably fourteen, I started picking corn and stacking hay on Anken's farm in Rome, New York. Um, I did that till I graduated high school, uh, and then you know worked in grocery stores, stocking shelves, uh, and then probably 15 17 years ago I started working at the Syracuse real food co-op here in Syracuse
0: cool store um,
1: I had a yeah it's, it's a real, it was a fun place uh, and it kind of opened my eyes to the the opportunities that were available in the food system I was like a lot of people that end up working in food in that I had a million different careers previously bounced around until I found my place uh, and that's where it happened for me it was in the aisles of the, the Syracuse real food co-op
0: yeah, that's a that's a pretty neat store. It's it's like uh, yeah. Green Star Market down in, in Ithaca. It's, yeah, yeah it it's stores. a cool store.
1: It's really neat to uh see a community owned enterprise like that. I wasn't super familiar with the cooperative business models till I started working there. Um uh, but it was real eye opening to see how businesses can have kind of a different focus than I had had originally learned.
0: Yeah, cool. So uh I, I wanted to talk with you today because I think in this country we're in some sort of a stage where people want to start small food businesses, but there's a lot to know about it. Uh, as you know, uh, Joanne and I have Clean Slate Farm, which we do the blended balsamic vinegars and uh, a couple of other products. But you can't just go out and say, oh, geez, this is a great product. They'll think I'll start selling it. There has to be, because it's a food, you have to be careful in, with what you're selling and how it's made. So let's start a little bit with a small business for food. It's a process, right? It's not like you just go out and do it. Uh, Unless
1: if, you're in Wyoming. If you're in Wyoming, then you can just go out and do it. You they can do changed any- their food law. You can do anything you want there. Really? Yeah. They They totally opened it up. If you wanted to make a meat lasagna in your home kitchen and then sell it to people on the bus, that would be totally fine there.
0: Oh, wow. That's wacky. It,
1: yeah, it's totally wild. And and their thinking is, you you as long as you're selling within state lines, um, you couldn't cause an outbreak of illness, there, and the repercussions would be in real time because you're selling to your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they do it as kind of an incubation period because they know you're not going to be able to, to impact too many people based out of a home kitchen sm- making small amounts of food, so they just opened it wide open.
0: So you won't kill too many people at once.
1: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have to be a pretty big corporation to kill a bunch of people at once. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, that's crazy. So f- for starting a small food business in general, though, there's a lot that you have to take care of. Like when we started Clean Slate Farm, uh, where we produced, we had to get Ag and Markets license uh, to to make the product in a kitchen that was certified by Ag and Markets Um uh, and then there's financial things and you have records and insurance. So it's not as easy as one might think, although it's not that great of a challenge that you can't overcome that. What kind of things do you see with your clients that that they're looking for and that they need to do?
1: Uh, well, it's a little bit different for everyone. So I work with uh, food processors that are making kind of shelf-stable goods. Uh, which is kind of a different standard than if they are making – like if they're a farmer and they're making and growing and selling produce. Um, You know, one of the basic challenges is folks don't really know where to start. And it's different on a state – you know, I mentioned Wyoming that they have these wide-open laws out there. It's a different system for every state. And so one of the challenges uh, for people is figuring out where they start. One of the challenges for me, um, I will give workshops on starting food businesses. I've done them in 15 states. And uh, it's hard enough to be an expert in your own state in your own category, and so now I take that information and go around to all of these different places. And so I usually start out on a cottage food w- uh, website called Forager. It's F-O-R-R-A-G-E-R Forager com.
0: Yep, and they there. have a
1: really yeah, they have a really great collection of uh, like a really easy to read map. You click on the state that you're in, and then it'll take you through the basics and then link you out to the appropriate state venues, whether it be ag and markets, uh, the department of health, um, you know, there's different places that are overseeing it for everybody. So for a lot of folks, it's just that first barrier of who do I even, who even regulates what it is that I do um, to, to before you're able to take the next step and what are the limitations? So a lot of folks home process, right? We've got the cottage food laws, the home processing laws, Again, every state is different, and it usually starts with what is it that I am able to make at home? Um, So I'm sure you came across this, right? Like you've probably done home processing as you were getting started out um, making different products, and you bump into a ceiling where essentially you're like, okay, I'm able to do this, but I'm not able to do this. Right. Um, One of the things I always joke about in the state of New York specifically is uh, and they've, they've updated the laws a little bit to get with the times but it used to be you could only make a pie that had a crust on top as well as on the bottom <laughs> so you couldn't have an open pie and and all I could ever think of is that this was because they they had a you know, people were cooling their pies on the windowsill, and they had a problem with hobos coming and sticking their thumbs in it. So they needed that extra protection. <laughs>
0: yeah, we get that around uh, here all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there, you know, the the laws can seem arbitrary in some places as to what the standards are, um, but a lot of states are really working hard to try and open that up to encourage uh, some kind of low risk. Uh, business incubation where people are giving it a try right? Um, and even New York they opened it up a little bit so I I lived in New York previously there was about 12 products that you could make and now I think it's closer to 50 Um, so they're they're getting there people are chipping away at it to try and open it up a little
0: yeah because there's a lot of small business ideas out there that could grow you know and mm-hmm. be sustainable yeah. Uh, yeah yeah food safety is something big for me i work in the restaurant business as you know mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. i'm just a freak about food safety i see people doing things and it's like don't 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 do that please <laughs> <laughs> we can't have that so
1: wyoming wouldn't be a good fit for you no
0: i probably would not be <laughs> well off in wyoming that wouldn't be good uh yeah. so we also uh, found like when we started out uh like i mentioned the ag and markets thing uh and mm-hmm. then State takes precedence over county, correct?
1: As Uh, far as I can tell? In my experience, yes. But I, you know, because the processing laws can get so complicated and are so different from state to state, I never say definitively on a general question because then there's always this little exception where it's like, well, if you put meat, then it has to go through this other But generally, you want to go to the state level. Um, but there are some states where the county takes a precedent uh, over the state. But generally, it is a state ag- agriculture and markets department that is overseeing food
0: processing. Yeah. So forager.com or .net, whatever it is, I'll find the I'll put the link mm-hmm. to the show notes in the show mm-hmm. notes. That's probably a good place to start because he, he keeps that pretty well updated as far as where you need to go to find out what regulations you have to work under if you're going to start a small food business.
1: Yep. And and what, one of the things that I really like it is, uh, besides aggregating all of the information for the cottage food for the home processing, is that he makes it really easy to find where to link to once you're ready to take that next step. So I don't know if you have ever spent any time on a government website. But More than I want to. <laughs> Sometimes it could be a little complicated to get through, uh, especially when it comes to regulations and things like that. So uh, that website makes it a lot easier to track down the information that you're looking for.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's pretty good site there. So yeah. now, actually, or when you actually have a product that you're producing, there's a couple of different ways you can go. And most people, like ourselves, we're we're small here. We're a small batch uh, with the vinegars. Mm-hmm. And we're going it alone. We're not using a co-packer. Can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about co-packers and when it might be a good idea for somebody to take it to a co-packer?
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and how do you find are, a co-packer?
0: They're, they're like...
1: They are few and far between. Yeah. And, and for every for every time I hear somebody say, boy, I really love this co-packer, I have also heard somebody say they really hate the very same co-packer. Uh so it's there's there's no one size fits all. I really wish this is one of those places where I was like, "Boy, there are these three companies, they're who you want to do business with." But they're all a little bit different. So, uh so your question is to how do you decide when uh you know, when you start one of these ventures. We all have, we all seem a lot younger when we start taking on a new business, right? right? Like oh, I can do the accounting myself, I can do the production, I'm going to do the marketing, and, and you do everything, right? Yeah. And so you end up, there's things that you're really good at, that you're passionate about, that brought you to start this business in the first place, and then there's pieces of it maybe that aren't as interesting to you or aren't within your skill set. And as you grow, you try to find other people to pick up those pieces of your business. And so production, once you get far enough along – It may be that uh, you really love going out in the world and working with the customers and you don't necessarily want to be in the kitchen or in the the processing facility spending all your time that way, or you may simply just not have enough time or the the customer service piece is what you're better at. So when you get to those points and you have to farm it out, co-packing is a place where usually there's a decision point, right? Either I'm going to keep making this myself and I'm going to farm out the sales work and the marketing work, or... I'm going to do the sales work and the marketing work, and I'm going to outsource the production. Mm-hmm. And so that's where people start getting in with co-packers. Um, Cornell, cooper- uh, Cornell runs a, a pretty inclusive site. I don't know how often they update it, but that'll give you some sense of co-packers that are in New York state. Um, other than that, like I always, whenever I go to one of these new places, I spend six or eight weeks researching the area where I'm going. So if I'm going to Little Rock, Arkansas or Boise, Idaho, uh, I'll spend time figuring out what resources are available to people, who seems reputable. Um, and there isn't just a one-stop shop for kitchens around the country. Um, there, it, it's really doing the online research and calling around. Um, and I'm a simple guy, so I like simple answers. Uh, So what I do is I will call around to uh, farmer's market vendors or farmer's market managers and ask them where their people are producing. That's a very good Uh, idea. Yeah. So if I go to Bozeman or go to Bozeman, Montana, and I don't know, I can call the farmer's market manager and say, hey, I'm coming to town. It offers an opportunity to obviously promote the work that I'm doing. Um, And then it also gives me a sense, they're like, if they say, hey, you know, half of all of our people go to this one co-packer, then I should probably check in with that co-packer to see what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the other complications is every co-packer offers a slightly different set of services. So some of them are very developmental. They're going to help you uh, come up with your scheduled process, your official recipe Um, They may be able to offer some marketing support. They may be able to offer some distribution support. Uh, They may be able to supply packages or graphic design. So they're all going to have a different set of services uh, that they can offer to you, which makes it even more complicated. So for me, I really like the recommendation. I like this product. I found out where they're making it. I'm going to see if I can make it there as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've investigated a couple of co-packers and... There's one down at Ithaca and, well, and then Nelson Farms, but they're not, uh, which is over in Morrisville, part of Morrisville Mm -hmm. College. Uh, They're Mm -hmm. not co-packing anymore. You can rent their kitchen, and that's where we're going to be moving our production. Uh, So in
1: that case, it'll be, it's like a shared-use kitchen as opposed to a co-packer. Is that right?
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and they've got somebody there, uh, Margie, who is... When you're there, Margie's there just to make sure everything's going cool and copacetic, so Mm -hmm. you don't get into any trouble. But Which, getting into trouble, one of the things that I I wanted to talk about also was, uh, you might know more about this, uh, like the structure of your company. You can start out Mm -hmm. as a DBA or a, a sole proprietor, and then as you grow, you should probably start thinking about moving into some limited liability corporation kind of thing, right?
1: Yeah, uh, I would say uh, when it comes to selling food, since there is some inherent risk to feeding people, uh, I usually tell people to start thinking about that stuff quickly. Like I wouldn't launch as a DBA uh, with a food business without knowing exactly what I was going to have to do to become an LLC. Um, And realistically, if the if uh, a potential foodpreneur is capable, I'd say launch with an LLC. Now, for me, I'm a services company. I don't actually produce any food. So working under a DBA makes sense for me. But if I was, uh, you know, making hummus and selling it to people, I would want to have that LLC just in case to to cover myself in case there's a worst case scenario um, and there's a recall or there's a food safety issue. It's good to have that little buffer. Mm -hmm. Um, And nowadays there's, there's so many more business models. You know, I tell people to look at B corporations to have the benefit corp. Um, You know, there's a lot of impacts that food has in a, in an ecosystem. And so if you can build a business that has more positive impacts um, it'll be a better business. People will respond to it more. It has a lot of benefit for you as well. Um, so I always encourage people to look at benefit corps. Um, and then I also am a huge fan of uh, a cooperative business models. So one of the things like we talked about how you come to a point in the road where you have to decide if somebody is going to make it for you or going to keep making it right. yourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There also comes a point often where you want to start hiring people, right? You need a crew. You've been doing it yourself for a couple of years or a couple of months, whatever it happens to be in your situation. And you need to crew up to two people, five people, 50 people. Uh, And it can be difficult to pay a fair wage to people that keeps them interested and gets you the best possible employees. And so I always encourage people to, to consider, um, Uh, turning their business into a worker cooperative where the people you are hiring actually become invested in your business as a way to um, sustainably grow your staff, uh, as well as paying people appropriately, have less turnover. So there's, uh, I always encourage people to take on one of those more serious business models and not just to to think of the LLC, but think of B Corp and think of cooperatives as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Now what's a B Corp? Is that, uh, I I haven't heard that term before. Is that a, it's
1: a, it's short for benefit corp, benefit corporation. So like Patagonia is a benefit corp. So there are certain guidelines by which you treat your employees and your impact on the planet, um, that show that you are meeting these certain metrics, uh, of, of a higher standard. So in an LLC, um, generally, like if you went public with an LLC, you're you're obligated to return a profit for your business, right? Like that's the end-all right. be-all of, of running a business is that it's profitable. Mm-hmm. And with a benefit corp, they add other standards as well. So it's not just how profitable you are, but within the, the structure, you're held accountable to your impact beyond just your profits. And so you have to meet a certain standard in order to become a benefit corporation.
0: I had never heard of that. And that's that's a, yeah. uh, an IRS-approved, sanctioned? It sure is. Whatever? Yeah. Okay. Cool.
1: And it is state-by-state. Uh, state. They've been rolling them out, so I don't know the status in every state as to uh, where they are, who it is that you, you start out with, but I believe it's bcorp.org. Uh, but you can find great information about Benefit Corps. And it's a little more complicated, for sure, and it certainly makes you meet a higher standard. But it also brings up uh, a lot of benefit back. Uh, So one of the things that small producers bump into in the marketplace is they're never the cheapest option, right? Right. You know, there's always going to be some monster corporation that can undersell you because they can buy, you know, tractor trailers worth of the same ingredients so they can drive their price down. Mm -hmm. And so you're always trying to find ways to show the value of your product to your customer. So I always use the example of $9 salsa, which is almost outdated now. So every town I go to, um, you know, there's certain products that always float to the service, right? People are making salsa everywhere I go. People are making barbecue sauce everywhere I go. Um, and they're they're trying to compete against these bigger brands. You're always going to be able to go out and buy a national brand of salsa for 3 bucks. Yep. And every town I go to, there's a salsa maker that just can't make a go of it for selling for anything less than 9 bucks. Yep. And realistically, like I'm starting to see that up to $10, $12 a jar now. Mm-hmm. And so how do you compete against somebody selling it for three bucks? I mean, there's always going to be customers that no matter what, that $3 salsa is going to be the one they choose just be- because of the price. Right. And so it's hard to tell your customer why you have so much more value. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can say, yeah, well, you know, it's a small batch. We make it by hand. We grow the ingredients. But a B Corp kind of quantifies that in a way the same way an organic label does or a fair trade label does. Being a B Corp can show a customer at a glance, okay, these people share some values that I have, or they're working harder to make sure that their business has a positive impact. And so that's something that I can support and I can see why it would cost more money because I see them taking extra steps to be a, a more mindful business.
0: Yeah, it tastes good and they're doing something else besides that. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, yeah, cool. That's that's uh, I'll I'll look into that and we'll put some notes down in the show notes there some links all right so now getting to market uh, after you've mm-hmm. actually decided whether you're going to do it uh, yourself or b corp or co-packer getting to market do you have any suggestions mm-hmm. on i mean the, if you're a small company like we we're running into this do we do the regional market do we do the cas market the faithful market mm-hmm. I don't even know where to go on this one. (laughs) Where on earth do you begin?
1: (laughs) So for most food businesses, the farmer's market is the A number one place that you go. Uh, It's not for everybody. You know, again, I don't like to make blanket statements, but for the vast majority of companies that I've worked with, it makes sense to launch at the farmer's market as a first step. And potentially as a way to have ongoing income on a weekly basis, which is awful nice. Cause once you get into selling wholesale, you're doing 30 day terms or 60 day terms or whatever it might be. Yep. Um, so I always say, go to the farmer's market, it is the great business incubator of the food system. It's people that have been doing it for 50 years, standing next to people that might be there for their first day. And there's a lot of knowledge you can get just from working the market and learning from your peers, Um, which is another one of those things where it's like, I'm starting a new business, I'm fresh at it and having a network of peers that you can turn to, to ask simple questions that maybe you don't know where to find them, or you didn't find them yourself online. Um, So the, the farmer's market provides that as well as that influx of cash on a weekly basis, which is really important when you're launching. And it also gives you an opportunity to engage with your customers face-to-face, which as you grow, you're going to have less and less of. So at the beginning stages, especially, it's really important to get that feedback about your product. Um, So I would say for everybody, launch at the farmer's market and find the market that's an appropriate fit. So you know, the, the regional market here in central New York is a monster. It's yeah. one of the biggest farmer's markets I've ever seen. The crowds are huge, but at the same time, you're competing, right? If there's not one coffee roaster there, there's six coffee roasters there. Right. So maybe you go to a smaller market like the Kaz market or the Skinny Atlas market, and you have a category all unto yourself. So maybe instead of seeing 20,000 customers, you're seeing 500 customers, okay. but you're the only one that's offering your product. Um, so there's some benefit in the smaller markets versus the bigger markets. Um, and then it also depends on what your end goal is. Now, if you are trying to make the most money possible at every market and it's your primary marketplace for selling, you want to have as big a customer base to hit up as possible right. um, for other folks. Like we used, uh, through the years when I was doing um, sales work and one-on-one work, what we found was we would use farmer's markets to launch us into a new marketplace. So we were trying to sell wholesale into New York City. We couldn't get anybody to give us the time of day. Um, I've told this story a million times. The first time I went, I made a goal of 100 sales calls in a week around New York, Brooklyn, Queens. And I made a sale at the first one. I was off to a great start. I was like, we're taking over the big city. I had 98 consecutive no's or didn't show up (laughs) for the meeting or pretended they didn't know who I was and asked me to come in at 5 a.m. for a meeting. And and then I made a sale at the last one. And so I ended up going and talking to uh, Kathy Rogowski. uh, She's a farmer in um, the Catskills. I forget the name of her farm right right now. Um, but she's brilliant. And I said, you know, you do really well in New York city. How did you get these accounts? And she was like, it was simple. I showed up at the farmer's markets and I started selling at the markets and all of the smart buyers that were trying to stay ahead of the curve came to the market. And so we got our wholesale accounts through those, uh, those markets we did.
0: Can't go under the so, wall, go over the wall. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I, we started looking back and I realized that with the accounts that I was working with, where we had a farmer's market booth in the community where we were selling, our wholesale partners did four times the business. Wow. So if we were in the farmer's market, they could quadruple their business at their wholesale Mm accounts. And it was because we were out there every week selling it. You know, we were telling their customers where they could go and get it. Oh, you need it on a Tuesday? You can go over to this market and grab it up there. Mm -hmm. And so then we launched into New York City with a series of farmer's markets and the first week that we launched in New York, we got a dozen wholesale accounts. Wow. Yeah. That's... So much easier than going door to door.
0: <laughs> yeah. Don't don't so hit in, your head against an, the wall.
1: In an, like that, in an instance like that, if we break even at the farmer's market, it's worth it. Um, so again, it's about the goal. So for some places, you go to the farmer's market and you make big sales and that's your your income for the week. And then other places, you might just break even at the market but the other impacts are so great on your business, it's worth it as a marketing tool.
0: Sure. Yeah, it's not always about the, the money you put in your pocket. The contacts you right. make come afterwards. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, you brought up an interesting point, break-even. Um, mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> the cost of salsa. Uh, b- because one thing that people have to do, again, I, I'm in the food world, I do costing for beverages and food mm-hmm. all the time. And that's something that is one of my strengths you have to when you're starting a small food business uh, you have to cost everything out and figure out what your profit margin is going to be i know we had uh, a woman at one of the or a fellow at one of the markets that you know he said god i'm not making any money i'm looking at this product i'm thinking well god you're selling it for four dollars you got probably five dollars worth of ingredients in the thing hey we're just going to take a short commercial break right here for a moment and you've heard me mention a couple of times here already our products the clean slate farm products That is a line of blended balsamic vinegars that we make here at Clean Slate Farm. Fig, ginger, garlic, and maple. The garlic is made with garlic from our gardens. The maple is made with maple syrup from a sugar bush down the street here. We also have a couple of other products. If you'd like to see any of those products and see what they're all about, go to cleanslatefarm.com. You'll find them there. If you're not local to central New York which you can buy these locally in central New York at the website, you'll find locations, but if you'd like to buy them, they are located there at the website and you can purchase them through the website. Don't forget also about our YouTube channel and we do DIY cooking, gardening, beekeeping and stuff there. Okay. Let's get back to the show. So right. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be very careful. So make sure you do your homework, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of folks, are new to the industry, right? Like I told my story where I bounced around a bunch of different industries and I ended up landing in food. Um, I think that's the case for a lot of folks. And so they buy food where they have norm, they buy ingredients where they are used to buying food. So they go to the grocery store and they buy off the shelf and they don't know that it's usually a pretty low bar to get a wholesale account. Right. If you're going to go, you know, every other week and pick up and you don't mind going to the wholesaler, they'll get you started with a really low. I mean, you might be able to get a wholesale account buying a hundred dollars worth of product every other week. um, Or you can collaboratively buy if you are networked well enough that you have some other producers that you work with. Sometimes you guys can pool your resources, place wholesale orders that way. Um, So that's a really common place uh, in like the, I do a series of workshops about starting a food business, and the first one's the ABCs. It's how to source your ingredients and the regulations and that. And we talk about this a lot: is stop going to Wegmans and Tops and Publix, and get out to your produce distributors. You know, find people that can give you a better price, and then uh, you know, start setting your prices from there and, mm-hmm. and trying. And, and a lot of people at the beginning stages they don't know that. And they're like, well, I'm going to sell it cheap. I'm going to sell it at, at, uh, you know, 0% profit just so I can get it into people's hands. And I'll figure that stuff out later. No, um, don't do figure that. it out later. Set it at the high end. If it needs to be nine bucks and then you're able to work your costs down from there, work them down. But if you're selling it at that price point, don't necessarily lower your price point, earn the extra margin. Um, cause there's this, and I'm, I'm sure you've been through this a bunch, there's this wave at your ride, right? Like, First it's that you're spending all your money on the ingredients and, and some of these processing steps. Then you're able to drive those costs down, but then those, co- those costs just pop up somewhere else. Well, yep. I need to hire a staff member or I need to use a Copac or a sales rep or whatever it is. And so sometimes people are like, Oh, I got a better price. I'm going to lower my retail price because my ingredients got cheaper. And then, you know, two months later, they have a new cost that comes up. So you want to make sure that you are, you leave some buffer. To absorb as you grow, there are costs to growing.
0: Yeah, you can't um, you raise the price the again.
1: That's right. You can you can only do that so many times, um, and you should people should raise the price as they need to. You know, the price of food goes up every year, and so you know you and other producers don't have to hold the line, but you do have to hold it for some time. You have to go yes. a year or two. Um, You can't raise your price every three months on the whims of the the marketplace, but you do have to be comfortable raising your price and talking to your customers when you need to do it. You have Mm -hmm. to do it.
0: Yeah. I think something that uh, people listening, if you're going to start a small food business, don't forget in, in the United States, there's two huge food distributors, Cisco's and mains and you are not that far from a Cisco or a mains distribution center and that can right. help you on a lot of your products the other thing to think about is if you have a farmer's market like we have the regional market here there's small you know produce and all kinds of uh distribution centers right there at that farmer's market because yeah you know it's a it's a convenient place for them to be so take a look at those sources but watch your pennies yeah. i'm
1: nodding my head vigorously
0: <laughs> yeah i I think there's uh, lots of them out there yeah i think a syracuse banana is like right it's like right across the parking lot oh
1: yeah and And, uh andy's produce you know they've, they've been really uh quick to jump in when we're doing uh workshops and stuff like that to say hey if you've got folks we can certainly figure out a way to work with them and again it goes back to like you don't want to use your distributors necessarily as a mentor but you learn a lot more about you know, distributing food by working with a distributor than you do by going and buying your ingredients off the shelf, right? There's a lot more insight to be had from you buying it from a distributor when you at some point want to sell it through a distributor. You want to know how that interaction goes.
0: Yeah. And, and you can find when you talk to the distributors also, uh, they may have an idea that might work for your product a little bit better, not necessarily mm-hmm. in the formulation, but... Uh, a substitute product. Like, uh, with us, we had a vinegar that we were using and they said, you know, for another buck or two, whatever it was, we can upgrade it to this vinegar. Uh, and it's a, it's mm-hmm. a better vinegar. It was a no brainer. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Use them as a source. Yeah,
1: it's, it's uh you know, something I say in all of the programs that I work, whether it's a workshop or a keynote, it's all about the relationships that you build and how you're able to manage them. And that's a great example. Like you were working with a distributor and they were like, we know how to improve your business at a, at a reasonable cost. Um, they know, they've been at it for longer than we have. Yeah. Um, you, you know, as long as, again, as long as you have a good relationship with them and you trust them, um, then that's a really, uh, that's gonna benefit your business. A lot of times people's products are terrible but their relationships are great and so they do well because
0: of it. Mm-hmm, yeah. So now we've got a business we, we've structured the business. We're making a product. We found a co-packer or we're doing it ourselves. Now we get into mm-hmm. how on earth do we let people know we've got this product after the farmer's market?
1: <laughs> well, uh, how evergreen do we need the, the podcast to be? It seems like it changes all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. So So uh, I started Small Potatoes 10 years ago. And we were, uh, I launched with a Facebook page. I didn't have the, this was when it was still pretty difficult to make a website, you couldn't get a Squarespace or a Wix and just drag and drop photos and you're off and going. Um, so I started with just the Facebook page and at the time, Facebook and Twitter were really easy to use, great marketing tools to reach a wide audience. So I might have 400 Facebook fans, but they were seeing all of my posts. They were engaged and as they've updated their algorithms and figured out ways to charge small businesses for using their service it's become way more difficult to break through <laughs> on these social media platforms is that, is that, does that that reflect your experience too
0: oh yeah they've grown exponentially there used to be 100,000 yeah. people now there's you know 10 million so
1: yeah, and so it's harder to break through, and the, the algorithms are tilted towards the businesses that pay, so the big businesses, again, are at this advantage. And so it, it's, I've circled back to the place where I started 10 years ago, where it's more that peer-to-peer, uh, real-world uh, marketing that, that makes things happen. And so one of the trends that we've seen within food as, as the selling has moved online is that where it used to be you would make one, two, three products and then try to get as many accounts as possible, right? Get it, sell it as many stores as possible to get mm-hmm. it into the consumer's hands. There's more opportunity to uh, sell directly to your consumer. And so one of the things that people do is instead of spending as much time marketing in all of these new places as they get new stores and they get on more shelves, is they try to sell more products to the people that are most into what they do mm-hmm. so sell more to your most dedicated customers so you're seeing the rise of the subscription service uh, where people are setting up a recurring order that comes to them once a month you're seeing places where so it used to be you made a hot a medium and a mild salsa and then you went on your way well now you better start making a black bean one and a pumpkin puree one and so people are offering more varieties to sell it to the people that they know are buying their product. So mm-hmm. instead of trying to get new customers all the time, they're trying to sell more to one person.
0: Right. So business really doesn't change. It's who's your, you know, who's your best customer? It's the one you've got.
1: And, and how do you maximize it? You know, I, I, I don't use a lot of like old business cliches, but the 80 the 20 rule where 80% yeah. of your business comes from 20% of your customers. Mm-hmm. I've never worked a business where that wasn't the case. That's yeah. always been true everywhere I go. Your most dedicated customers are going to do the vast majority of your business. Mm-hmm. And so now people are, are trying to, to figure out ways to maximize that by selling more directly to them. Um again there's the additional costs that come with running a subscription and doing the shipping and all of that. But if you can sell five or six products to one person that you were previously selling one product to, you can nurture that relationship, you can figure out what it is that they like, you can gear your business towards your most dedicated customers. And that's really been the, the movement in food of late.
0: Yeah, we're you know, a lot of what we're talking about is stuff that we have personally experienced in our Small food venture yeah. growing here. So,
1: uh, and one of the things with with uh, you know, as I transitioned away from doing sales work and marketing work one on one and started doing the more educational piece and traveling the country, is it's been really cool to see the different stages of the food scene in the different places that I go. So Syracuse as a in Central New York, I think personally has a really well developed local food scene Um, to the point even where people are starting to crowd each other out. Right. Like it didn't used to be, you even competed with other local people. You just competed with the national brands. Right. But now, you know, there might be 20 coffee roasters within 20 miles of Syracuse where it used to be, there was just two or three. Um, And so that, as that's gotten more complicated around here, I, I go to these different towns and I see them in these different stages. So, you know, maybe I go to Butte, Montana, and they have a handful of people that are doing really good work, but they're still starting a new farmers market, um, or they're you know the the grocers are just starting to get around to the buy local movement. And then you you go to some of the other towns, and it's very well developed, and every neighborhood has its own farmers market, and there's locavore focused grocery stores. Um, so it's really interesting to see how it's played out around the country, where you know I hear uh, Syracuse is behind the times. Uh, in reality like when i was going to new york city every week and selling products we felt like and a lot of the vendors that were coming from upstate were like you know we always hear about how new york is driving the the food scene well they are for restaurants but they aren't necessarily for farm products and for you know food like products that have been like food (laughs) yeah like food products grocery stuff so Mm -hmm while the restaurants were they were pulling us along for the food products and for the the farm product we were actually bringing them along and mm-hmm. so i'd come down to new york and i'd say oh we've been doing this in syracuse for 3 years um and so it's it's interesting to see how that dynamic plays out uh, across the country
0: yeah i would have to say that where we live we're fortunate because it is a very vital or um, uh, not vital um, yeah, I think it's so. a vital I think that's scene. A, it's, 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 yeah, yeah. It's it's a pretty a pretty happening scene around here. With boy, I just dated myself. Didn't it? It's a happening scene.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I say the same thing. So I guess we're in the same same age bracket. Oh we won't man. tell people otherwise. No, <laughs>
0: we'll let them we'll let them wonder. But it is it's a it's it's, old is new again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we're we're lucky in this area. It's it's a pretty cool For scene sure. around here. So and we yeah. uh, you're right with coffee roasters. Uh, there's a million coffee roasters around here. So. Yeah,
1: and they keep popping up, so there must still be demand. Yeah, you know, like they they wouldn't keep popping up if people weren't supporting all of these different businesses. It's it's really inspiring. And then it's the same, you know, wherever I go, you'll see these different little categories jumping up um, that are starting to stand out. And then at the same time, so while there's stuff that is very regionally focused and locally focused, there's also movements within the food system that are universally happening. So uh, alcohol, beer spirits and cider are jumping off everywhere that I go and are really becoming anchors to the local food scenes. Mm -hmm. So in Montana, it was a lot of uh, spirits when I go out there because they have a well-established grain system, right? They, Mm -hmm. they've been, um, you know the Montana Bread Company and all these these businesses from years past. Sure, they grow grains out there, and so now the marketplace is moving them towards making vodkas and gins and, and different beverages out of it. And so you're seeing this explosion of that. So every town I go to, the the, the alcoholic beverage scene is really kind of dragging along some of the other pieces of the food system.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's wacky. Uh, the brew scene around this town. Uh, central new york here is just you're right has exploded so yeah
1: yeah um and one of the things that's like i i always try to connect uh like the the economics of the food system to the culture of the food system too and so brewing popping up around central new york is always really exciting to me because i you know look back at our history of you know before prohibition we were the number one hops growing center of the whole country yeah And then it all disappeared between prohibition and blight. They just had a 15 or 20 year period where the industry was snuffed out. Um, And so now it may be happening all over the country where the, the, the breweries are popping up. I have this connection to it in central New York where we're tapping into, you know, our history of food production 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Even if we're doing it in a different way and the recipes have changed, we've always been tied to hops growing and uh malt producing barley production and all that mm-hmm. stuff so it's cool to, to see the connection between um the food system previously and how it's being applied to the the food system moving forward
0: yeah yeah i was just we our product is now going to be in a new new so i can't announce it yet uh a new <laughs> new store here uh in central new york uh and they're going to be doing you probably read it in the paper uh they're going to be <laughs> growing hops four seasons in greenhouses to make their beer. I did see that. Yeah. That's
1: really that's really amazing. Yeah, I was just uh, there and it's, yesterday. Like and it's... the innovations around it are so cool. Uh, you know, I think people sometimes I hear all the oh New York, you know, it snows nine months a year and the growing season's so short. But the short growing season has really forced people to be innovative up here. Yeah. Um, you know intergrow tomatoes, you probably come across them in your travels. A lot Mm -hmm. of folks don't realize what a cutting edge facility it is out in Western New York to grow these tomatoes. We just see fresh tomatoes every day, 365 days a year, and we're like, oh, it's a hothouse. It's not exactly. I mean, they're doing some really interesting stuff, and they're using technology. um, And indoor cultivation in the last 10 years is another one of those categories that's exploded. Um, There's other there's other factors driving the innovation behind it, but it is starting to spill over into food. So we're starting to see more of that 24 or the 12 month production of products that were only available for brief periods previously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know there, uh, there's a place out in Geneva area here that's growing ginger. Who would have thought ginger would grow in New York state? Uh, there's
1: a place here too. Uh, Zarek greenhouses, uh, Denise that Denise and Bernie Zarek uh, out in Westmoreland grow some ginger and turmeric as well.
0: That's right. Yeah, I saw them at the Casanova yeah. Market the other day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, neat. So let's do a quick rack up, wrap, rack up, wrap up here.
1: <laughs> <clears throat> I'm gonna rack this one out of the park. <laughs> uh,
0: and just talk a little <laughs> bit about where, just the steps to go through this. You have a product idea, and mm-hmm. where do you go? <laughs> Whew. So you got to cover your financial and your marketing and yeah. So
1: for, so for me, I am a planner. Uh, I am an obsessive planner. Uh, now I'm not one of those people that plans to the point where I'm not able to pull the trigger when the time comes, but I'm always, I always want to be aware of what my obstacles are going to be before I get to them. And so I'm big on writing a business plan. I think that even if you just write something skeletal, uh, any new foodpreneur aspiring entrepreneur, even if you've been at it for a while, if you haven't taken this step yet is go and write a a semi-traditional business plan. Um, I, you know, uh, I, I make this joke all the time. I go, go meet with the squares, go meet with the business people that help you with your metrics, the squares, Um, (laughs) the squares. And I don't just mean Joanne, (laughs) (laughs) which I I would never, I would never suggest that Joanne's a square. She's the, she's the hippest cat. I know (laughs) there, (laughs) Uh, But so, you know, go to the Women's Business Center, go to the Small Business Development Center, the Southside Innovation Center, SCORE. There's a slew of business support agencies out there, many of which are free for business planning, or if they're not free, they're very cheap. And they will either uh, put you into a class where it teaches you to, you know, go through the business planning process, or they might meet with you one-on-one to lay out uh, what a template should look like. And so the first thing it's going to do is it's going to point you in the directions of where you need to learn more. And then it's also going to help you identify which are the the pieces of your business that you just, you know, are always going to be a challenge for you. Mm-hmm. So I happen to love metrics and, and data. I grew up a baseball fan. And so I love statistics. So when it comes to like analyzing sales data and things like that, I'm really strong with it and I love yep. to do it. And then other people, they don't want to see the numbers. That's not something that appeals to them or it, it, that they uh, that they move to naturally. And so through your business planning process, you're going to identify, hey, this is something I know I'm not going to be good at. I need to have a game plan now. So when the, the tax season comes, I'm not trying to figure out my bookkeeping. I knew in advance it wasn't going to work for me. So I hired someone yeah. or I outsourced it. And so I think business planning is really important that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, the, to use the resources that are out there, the the Small Business Development Center (SBDC) uh, score is a good one. Women's mm-hmm. Business Center, depending on what's the right fit for you. And there and are, I would say,
0: I'm sorry, there's this is mm-hmm. uh there's Small Business Development Centers all over the country, and every state has these. And and score is right. the what is it the what score stand for again? They
1: they change so uh, it's funny. My my grandfather was very active in score in the eighties and nineties mm-hmm. to the point that they actually named one of their trophies after him. Um, they, and so it used to be the senior corps of retired executives, right? But they they got rid of it. They they don't just work with retired business counselors. Now they work with, uh, you know, full time professional counselors as well. So I don't think the acronym stands anymore. Um, But, yeah, SCORE used to be retired uh, business folks would kind of mentor people and help them with their business plan. But now they've gotten a little bit uh, into into Full-time professionals, yeah. there... and then the SBDC oh. is. Uh, so I tell you, I travel around the country. I go to all these places. Predominantly, I do that with small business development centers. They generally are sponsoring me to come to their town. Um, I do their national conference every year, and, and I've met directors all over the country. They're a wonderful resource, and most everything that they do from the business planning standpoint is free. Um, free counseling. They do cheap classes, uh, but I would recommend either of those uh, depending on your fit. Um, I tell people in in whatever category it happens to be to shop around and shop around for a business counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a business counselor myself at the SBDC. So besides them hiring me to give workshops, I'm actually hiring them for business counseling. Yeah. Um, it's free. I say that, that they're hiring me, and I've been working with the same counselor uh, since before she was with the SBDC. She's a, she's been a counselor on Small Potatoes for ten years now, mm-hmm. um, and so in a lot of times, people will see that they build these long term relationships with uh, folks that they wouldn't necessarily have thought of before. And the insights are invaluable. Sometimes sure. you need somebody who's standing at arm's length to be like, it's obviously this thing. And you're like, oh, right. I was so close to it. I couldn't see it anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. And the SBA also, the Small Business Administration, also mm-hmm. has contacts. So anywhere you are, there's an SBA office, or you can get in touch with them pretty quickly. And they can put yeah. you in touch with SBDCs or, like Joanne runs the Women's Business Center for um, mm-hmm. uh, here in Syracuse. And mm-hmm. there's, there's resources available to help you get that stuff going. So.
1: Absolutely. And no matter where you are. And the worst case scenario would be that they make them available to you online. I mean, we live in a world now where you can get anything yeah. at the swipe of a finger. And so, so, so that's usually where I tell people to start, right? So start with a business plan, identify your weaknesses and what your next steps are, and then make your moves from there.
0: That's pro that's very sage advice because that's going to tell you exactly what you need to know from there. So. Well, Marty, this has been a great conversation. Can you think of anything else that, that I didn't ask that we should cover? Or?
1: No, I think that's everything. I mean, it's, uh, we could, we could talk all day. You know, I know. And, and since Lisa was like, <laughs> Hey, we could, we could do eight hours on any one of these topics yeah. if you like. Yeah, so, I know. you know, it, and the, so that, you know, that always goes down to, to the planning too. I always think about like, you can't over plan, make sure that you are ready for your circumstances but ultimately, it's about the action that you take, right? So right. make sure that you're ready for what's going to happen and that you you know the time is right to make the decision and move forward and, and to jump in with both feet.
0: Yeah. Yep. Now, Marty, tell people where they can find you if they want to get in touch with you.
1: Yeah. So my social media handle on everything is smallpotatoes42, the number 42. The first 41 small potatoes were already taken. <laughs> um, so small potatoes, 42 on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, small potatoes, 42.com is my website. Um, I am small We'll get you, we'll get you there as well. Um, and then people can track me down from there. Um, I don't have any cl- public classes, uh, pending right now. Um, I'm doing some conferences for business counselors coming up. Um, uh, but I'm always available for one-on-one consulting counseling, General camaraderie, whatever folks might be looking for, mm-hmm. they can track me down at
0: uh, all those spots. Okay. Well, we'll we'll put the links to your your uh, small potatoes in the show notes here, and uh, okay. see if we can drive some people over to help out because it's a it's an interesting thing to do for a, for a living. And, it's uh, much of it.
1: it that it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and food businesses are really fun. You meet some some of the nicest people we've ever met are at the farmers markets that we've been at, and you know the stores we sell our product in. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's definitely uh, good for the soul it's, it's as well. A
1: lifestyle change, yeah, that's what yeah. I was thinking. You know, there's so many people that come to food because they are burned out on whatever the other thing is that they're doing. You know, it's a really common thing for me to meet people that are like, "Look, I'm looking to start a business because I I was a a middle manager at a communications company for the last twenty years." And I need something else out of my life. And they come to food because it's exciting. It has cultural impacts. You meet people in real life uh, and, and you get on their dinner tables and you, you get to take part in their celebrations. Even if you aren't there, you're helping them to celebrate their holidays with their families. Uh, I, I I can't say enough good things about working in food. It's, it's really brought a lot into my life and I see it doing the same for so many other people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I see the same thing, Joanne, and I see the same thing. And then you know, working in restaurants like I do, it's it's a fascinating industry. And but absolutely, the world of small business is always fun. There's no doubt about that. So, well, Marty, <laughs> thanks sure. very much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. We're going to put your name and everything down in the show notes. And uh, good luck in the future. We'll stay in touch because well, we might even hire you ourselves some point here. <laughs> so. I'll
1: be here.
0: Okay, good great, Marty. Again. Great, thank you. Okay, that wraps up another show. Thank you for downloading and listening to this podcast, uh, the interview with Marty Butts. We really appreciate that. If you get a chance, please go over to iTunes and click on subscribe. That would be terrific. Or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, leave us some positive feedback and a like or two. That always helps. Thanks again. The Clean Slate Farm Podcast is a production of, you've got it, Clean Slate Farm. We appreciate your listening. Copyright 2019. Bye.